1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Saints of God, let us pray. We thank you, Lord, so much for putting to death, death itself. We thank you, Lord, that you came. We thank you that you marched into the city that slaughters the prophets and let them slaughter you. You knew what it would accomplish. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us now. We thank you and we praise you by your spirit that you would strengthen us by your spirit to receive your word and that we would go from here and by your spirit, Lord God, live as the triumphant people of a triumphal king. We thank you and we praise you in his name and amen. Now, last week, what we looked at was the triumphal entry. And, and I want to say that we call it that because before Passion Week ever started, before Holy Week even began, before Jesus ever entered the city that would put him to death, he had already triumphed over life. He had found out that his friend Lazarus was sick, and his comment on it was that this is, this is done by God for the glory of God. He did not fear the death of Lazarus. He then went to Lazarus' tomb, and he raised his friend from the dead. And, and this is why people were flocking to him. This is why they received him into the city with so much joy and so much happiness. This is why uh, Lazarus' sister properly responds by coming and throwing her fortune on him, by breaking the um, oil and pouring it on him and crying upon him and loving him, because he is the Lord of life. It, it's crucial that we understand this. He was already the Lord of life before he entered Jerusalem. There was a great conspiracy going on. There was a conspiracy going all the way back to the garden in which the, the conspirators of death were planning the death of man and the conspirators of life, the triune God, were conspiring to give life to men. This conspiracy was going on and on and on. And we see in the, in the events of Jesus' last week that this conspiracy is, is come to uh, fruition. It's come to fullness. Life is Jesus' primary weapon against his enemies. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was showing them what he could do. He said, come, come and get me now. Look what I did for Lazarus. I'm yours. I'm not staying away from Jerusalem. I'm going to come to your own city. I'm going to whoop you in your own town. And his weapon is life. That is what we have to understand. It was always his weapon. And their weapon, and, and this, is the, this is the enemy that we serve, it's, it's Time for us all to grow up a little bit and stop taking the enemy so seriously. Lazarus dies. Jesus raises him from the dead. And the biggest thing that the enemies of God can come up with is putting him to death again. That's hilarious. Right? And as I said last week, there's Jesus standing at the tomb. And they slaughter Lazarus. And they put him in the tomb. And Jesus raised him from the tomb. And then they slaughter him, put him back in the tomb. And Jesus, I mean, how long would this go on? Right? Can you imagine such a game? The biggest thing they can come up with is death. And so Jesus says, all right, this is all you got? This is all you got. Fine. I will come and I will submit myself to death and we will see what comes of it. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And the only thing his enemy could come up with is the thing that he had already defeated. We read in John chapter 11, verse 47 to 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. John chapter 11, verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. They are afraid of losing their place. They are afraid of losing their position and their influence. And the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus and Lazarus because of their envy. They don't, want to, they, they don't want to give up anything. And they see that this man who's raising Lazarus from the everyone is going over to him. And, and they're not even thinking about what they're doing. They're simply afraid. Their, their slavery and, and their love of death it keeps them blind to what's really going on. Because, again, the best thing they can come up with is the thing that already didn't work. 
but they're so terrified of losing what they're holding on to. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 explains it perfectly. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Are you a conspirator of, of life or death? If you're a conspirator of death, it's because of your envy. If you have strife and death in relationships, if there is strife and death in your home, strife and death at work, strife and death anywhere in your life, it is because of your envy, right? It's not the other person. I guarantee you, it's not the other person. Now, this, um, there's a philosopher named Gerard, uh, and he calls this mimetic violence. Um, it, there's a book called I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning. It's fantastic. If you read it, it, it explains all of this. It's not just that I covet what other people want. I am angry that they have it. And so what I want to do, if I, if I eliminate them, if I get rid of this person, this scapegoat, that has pre prevented me from getting the thing that I want, I will, I, everything will be fine. And this is what the conspirators of death are all about. If they got rid of Jesus, they will be able to keep everything that they own. Now, this conspiracy of death was long proph prophesied, and it's typological. It's something that... It, in Psalm 2, they're not just talking about one particular conspiracy because the conspiracy of death is ongoing. There's always conspirators of death against God. But, but it helps us understand everything that was going on in, in the Passion Week. This is what it says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Now, what I want to say is we're going to go on to see that death is, in fact, slavery. Death is a cord. So Jesus wants to get rid of chains, and man wants to get rid of chains. Now, the chains that man wants to get rid of are the word of God. The chains that the Lord wants to get rid of are Satan, sin, and death. And, and that is the conspiracy to all of human history. That's the conspiracy to redemptive history and to human history. Now, Paul understood this. And so did Luke, so did the, all of the apostles. This is what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So he applies Psalm 2 directly to, to the people alive at Jesus' time. They were the ones conspiring against God in heaven and they were against the Lord's anointed, who is Jesus. This conspiracy against Christ uses death as its chief weapon because the chief weapons of God's enemy is always death. That's what they use. This is why Satan, he, he is not God, whatever we want to make of him. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-knowing. All he is a limited creature, just like you and I. And so he can't go here, there, and everywhere. He, he has to go here, there, and everywhere like you and I do, right? So he came and he introduced Satan, uh, sin and death into the into the world, because if he affects Adam with sin, sin and death, it affects all of his progeny, and there Jesus doesn't have to, or I'm sorry, Satan doesn't have to go everywhere. You carry death around with you everywhere you go because you're a sinner. It was a brilliant strategy on one level. Now, he forgot, as what C.S. Lewis calls, the deeper magic, right? There is a deeper, older magic that the white witch forgot about. And so, too, did Satan, because he introduced sin into the world, and through it, he brought us all under bondage and through death. And now what does man fear more than anything? Right? What do we spend our time? <laughs> longevity. We want longevity. We want to live forever. We fear the grave. We fear the pain. I, I'm, I'm only turned 40 recently. I was expecting to have it be much harder to get out of bed. It's not yet. Thank God. But right, even then, I was like, well, it was almost like I accepted it before it happened. Well, now it's going to be hard to get out of bed because I'm so old. And then I woke up on the, you know, my 40, 40th plus one, and I was fine. And then I went jogging because, again, I'm afraid of death. No. <laughs> we fear death, don't we? We fear it. Jesus came to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. There is a conspiracy of death that holds you in bondage. And what they call bondage is the Lord's law, which is a law of what? Is it a law of bondage or freedom? Now, and this is a question I've asked before. Is the law of God actually bondage? Is the accusation of the enemy true? When you read the law of God, you look at that and you say, oh my God, 
I cannot have those cords tied around my wrists. That is absolute slavery. And if you think that, it's because you're buying into this conspiracy against God. But think about it this way. Okay, if I if God says, do not steal, do not covet, do not, right, do not lie, I have freedom now. This is what the law is all about. I can get up and leave my house because there is a law in the land that holds people back from doing whatever they think they ought to do, which gives all of us a great deal of liberty. And that's what the law of God is all about. Live your life. Live it. And, and you can because there are these rules that govern our activity. We can't just do whatever we want whenever we want to do it. And the world sees it and says, no, that, that's a slavery I don't want. And Jesus comes and says, no, there is a much worse slavery than that. This is freedom. And he came to free us from the true slavery, which is slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And death is that weapon. That's that, that sharp, pointy thing that we're always being threatened with that gets us to act a certain way and do a certain thing and say certain things. And it controls us. And the enemy knows this. This is why Jesus had to deal with it. By nailing Christ to the cross, the powers believed that they were doing what they ordinarily do, using death as a means of control and power. Well, if we just kill him, everything will be fine. Everything will be fine if we just put Jesus to death. It's the only way that they can understand, right? If we kill him, the people will scatter and our problem goes away and everything stays the same. Status quo. But in reality, they were contributing to their own annihilation, nailing themselves to the cross, so to speak. They would not have participated in this if they had known. So, right? If they would have understood, wait, all along the triune God has had this plan where we introduce death in the world to control people, and then he will come and through death put death to death. Right? Satan would have been like, whoa, 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 get him down off of there. We can't have this. And he would have had to come up with something different. They would not have done it if they understood what they were doing. Because what we find out is the conspiracy of death against God is actually God's conspiracy against them. Right? He, he, he is, in fact, God. So not only does he know what you would have done, he knows what you're going to do. He knows what, everything that could ever happen. And so, oh, wait, he was way out ahead of this problem before the problem was ever introduced into the world. It's amazing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And I submit to you this morning that um, in that all things, he includes life and death. Because this is, we have to understand, Jesus didn't just come and take away death. Right? Because everyone in here is going to die. So we have to say, wait a minute, death still exists. No, death came, or Jesus came, and he took death away from the enemy. He took it and made it his own. All things are reconciled in Jesus now, life and death. Death is not something that the enemy is wielding. Jesus has turned the whole thing on, on its head. He has taken death away from the enemy and made it something that is a blessing to us now. He unifies everything, even death. All right? He didn't go up into heaven at the, on the day of ascension and, and, and leave us with this one big problem still, death. He took care of everything. And, and what we have to under, understand is what death is now. Because death is a giant jewel in the Lord's crown. And that is not how we think about it. It's still, right? The enemy's like, well, they don't really understand. They don't understand like we didn't understand. So we'll keep using death in this conspiracy of death to keep people in bondage. And so many of us who don't understand what death is now go along with it. We say, yes, you want us to dance, right? Bring out Fauci and his fiddle and we'll dance, right? Bring, no, let's hear it. Let's hear the chorus of critical race theory. Bring out the choir of critical race theory and we will all dance. And, and what they do is they hold us in bondage with this worldview, this fear now. And if once we understand what death actually is, all of the right, we see the enemy and we see them as clowns. We see them as clowns, the clowns that they are, sad little clowns that need saving. Now, once you see the enemy as foolish and needing of saving, what does that do to them? Do, or do you any longer fear them? And this is what Jesus wants. This is what Resurrection Day is all about. He says, why are you still buying into this conspiracy that I done whooped? I whooped it. I whooped it up and down. <laughs> 
I turned it on its head. Why are you still falling for the same old tricks? Now, Satan made us slaves through sin and the wages of sin, death, also making us accomplices to his crimes. That was the other convenient thing. He can't be everywhere at once, but you and I can't, right? Anywhere there's people, there's sin. <laughs> Anywhere there's people, there's sin and death. And what we see on, on uh, Holy Week is the fact that everything went smashingly, right? It's not just Satan conspiring against us. Anyone um, through the fear of death and through this whole fallen worldview that, that man has, we now become um, conspirators along with Satan. And everything went smashingly for him. Israel, the Romans, even the disciples themselves played their part in the conspiracy against Jesus. And what did they fear? Why did all the disciples run away? Because they feared death, right? What, what, did, um, what did Judas fear? Well, he feared losing the fact that he could steal out of the money, right? My source of life is this money, this greedy money. This is what I want. I'm going to lose it if this man is just letting people, right? He's letting them come in here with expensive ointments and just dump them on his feet. What's the matter with him? And, and he's afraid of losing what he's, he's clutching, clutching and grabbing. And so everybody on, in Passion Week plays their part perfectly. What, what did Pilate fear, right? Well, back then, okay, you don't just have a recall vote and send Pilate back to Rome. That's not how it worked. If Pilate doesn't do his job and, and things don't go well, they come and they take Pilate's head off. They're like, here, this is what you should have done to everybody. <laughs> and, and everyone is acting through fear, and you see the conspiracy against Jesus, against life, goes off smashingly. Right? And there's Satan chuckling. <laughs> and then there's this deeper thunder that we can hear, this other laughter that we can hear coming from somewhere higher because it was the plan all along. Satan is very clever concerning everything having to do with rivalistic conflicts, envy, murder, scandals, persecution, and violence, but he is blind to the realities of divine love. There was a trump card all along. There was a deeper magic. There was something more powerful than anything Satan could understand. And all along, what is it? he does not know the God that he's fighting. He doesn't know him. And if, because if he did know him, he would, he would know no matter what I do, I will be outmaneuvered by love. Because that's what Jesus did. John chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So if you lay your life down for your friends, you free your friends. You have the most, right? Why, did he, why was he able to raise Lazarus from the dead? And he didn't just love Lazarus because he loved Lazarus personally. Lazarus was his father's son. Lazarus was put into his hands. And he said, I'm not going to lose any of them. He was able to raise Lazarus from the dead because of his love. Love is the thing that he was armed with. And, and what he wanted to do was use that love to fight the enemies of God and free us from bondage and slavery and sin and death so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Theologian Herman Bavinck says that in his humiliation too, Christ was the mighty one who himself freely laid down his life, uh, freely laid his life aside and gave his soul a ransom for many. The hour of the might of darkness was in fact his hour. The darkest hour against God was in fact Jesus' greatest. John chapter 7 verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 80, verse 20. Or I'm sorry, John chapter 80. There's no chapter 80. <laughs> chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to put him to death when? Herod wanted to put him to death when he was still in a cradle. And Jesus was like, nope, not yet. Oh, you, now you want to do it now? Nope, not yet. Oh, now? Oh, you have so much power over me. How about now? Oh, no, not yet. Not yet. Because his hour hadn't come yet. So the darkest hour of Satan, Jesus, there he is, and he's got it in his hand. It's his. He will lay his life down when he wants, and he will take it up when he wants, and no one will make him do otherwise. No one. He says in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me. No one. Oh, you mean the spear didn't take it from you? The nails didn't take it from you? The whipping didn't take it from you? Right? Oh, my, my sin didn't take it from you? 
You lay it down and take it up whenever you want? Well, okay. <laughs> That's very different, right? If the conspirators knew that, they would never have attempted a move against him. It's what they did not understand. They thought all the power and control was in their hands, and they opened their hand to see all their might and power, and it's empty, just like the tomb. He lays it down and takes it up whenever he wants, and that's power, ladies and gentlemen, because what's the worst, what's the worst weapon the enemy has against us? What's worse than death? Right? Well, you know, I lost my arm in that car accident, but I'm sure I'm glad to be alive. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I, I had an accident at work, and now I'm in this wheelchair, but man, I'm still alive. Right? We, we are so grateful for life, even if it means some diminished version of it. That's why we keep people plugged into machines. It, you know, they can't talk, they can't hear, they can't eat, but man, they're alive. Think how, how terrified we are of death. And Jesus says, yeah, you know, I turn the light on and turn it off whenever I want. And this is why when he came to, the, to Jerusalem, everyone said, yes, here I am, take me. We will fall down in front of you and we will worship you. And it's because he could raise one man from the dead. Because we fear death that much. Now, what, what, now right? the conspiracy moves in for the kill. And he says, okay, now I'll let you have it. Here you go. Have it. God yielded up the life of Christ because it was always his plan. It was always his conspiracy against death to use death to put death to death. Try to say that out loud three times. The pangs of death were, so to speak, the labor pains of a new life. Because Christ now is the firstborn of a new humanity. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to come out of the womb to create this new mankind. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And in this, the triune God's conspiracy was complete. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. You, 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 all of you, you were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. You're like, well, you know, that sounds great, but I'm still going to die, Mike. You're like, yes, that's the whole point of the sermon. Because it says very clearly he disarmed them. He disarmed them. So why do we fear them? Why do we fear the conspirators of death? Why do we take them seriously on any level? They have no weapons. They have nothing. You're like, I don't know, Mike. It sound, right? If we go and we take a poll right now in the Middle East, and we ask the Christians, yeah, yeah, they kill them left, right, and center. Yes, they do. But what is that? What is that? What is that? What is it? What have they done to them? When you when you put a martyr to death, what have you done to them? Have you taken away all their hope? Have you taken away all their life? We still fall for the same old trick. Death is still used the same way it always was because we don't understand what death has become in the hands of the living God. The first Adam dropped and broke this world as he was trying to hand it off to Satan in his sin and death. He was like, oh, here, you want the world that the Lord gave me? Here. And as he's handing it off, he drops and breaks it. Satan's doing a little dance. So the father sends his son down out of heaven to pick up the world, to remake it, clean it off, and give it to the father, which is the person who always wanted to receive it from the hands of men. The conspiracy is over. We have all of us, all of us, been outwitted by God and his humility and grace. And, and still, we still join in with the conspiracy of death whenever we buy into the lies that Satan, sin, and death can do anything to us. Right? It's not just some people out there who are trying to sell Satan, sin, and death. When you fear anything other than God himself, you are buying into the conspiracy. And, and th this is what Resurrection Day is. This is why it's glorious to celebrate it once a week. Yes, I said it. Easter is a weekly celebration. We'll get to that part. But we must be reminded every week 
He has disarmed our enemy. They've got nothing. They have got nothing. All things are united in him. He is the master, and he is a benevolent master. Paul explains in his various epistles, and this is just a conglomeration of a bunch of things that St. Paul has said. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come past the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Oh, you're coming at me with death? <laughs> it has no sting. Right? Is that how we approach life? Is that how we approach life? <laughs> no. Sorry, that was a rhetorical question, but I'll just answer it for everyone. No. As a good master, Jesus never takes something away without putting it in its place, something better. Now, parents, I'm going to say this again. <laughs> right? The Lord, is a, he's a good father. He's a good master. If you own a business, also listen to this. If you have people in your employ, the Lord never takes away something without putting some, something better in its place. Just think about what that means as a parent. Right? We, no, kids, you can't do that. No, employees, you can't do that. Right? We're people of no, and we think God is a, is a person of no. But remember what the garden was. It was a garden of yes with a tree of no. Right? The benevolence of God is something we hardly understand. He never just takes things away. He doesn't, right? He doesn't just say, don't commit adultery, because what I have for you is actually marriage. And you're like, wow, this is way better than adultery. Like you're saying, don't do that. That's okay, fine, I won't. But then you put in its place this thing that's more glorious. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how he does it all. He never says no unless he has a better yes. Let the hearer understand. Jesus doesn't just take away our physical death. He alters it altogether. He literally recreates it and lays claim to it. He makes death his. He makes it his own. He makes it a means of blessing. He turns the greatest curse of mankind, the greatest weapon of the enemy, into one of his greatest blessings. Death is now the last step to complete and full physical fellowship with him. This is what he's done to death. Listen, listen to Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, what does that mean exactly? What it means is that when Paul closes his eyes here, he will open them in the presence of the Lord Jesus. That's what that means, right? You don't get on a slow bus. I love C.S. Lewis, and if you've read The Great Divorce, right, you don't spend a bunch of time in hell and then ride a bus up into heaven, and you see, like, the mountains far away, and you're like, oh, is that where Jesus lives in the mountains? Now, I love that story. It teaches us a lot about heaven. But we have this idea of death being this long journey to some place. No, it's the briefest journey that you will ever experience because you will not be here anymore, and then you will be with him. And so the worst possible thing the enemy can do is send us to be with him. That's it. That's what they got. They're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I'm with Paul. Maybe it is better that I die. Maybe it's better that we all just die right now because we will just cease being here and be with him. Now, have you ever thought how insane it is that he says something like that? Well, it's, I'm kind of, I don't really know what's better. And we're all like, are you kidding me? <laughs> death, death is terrible. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And the reason that death is now a blessing is because through death we arrive immediately in the presence of the Lord where true fullness is found, our, our true and eternal home. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm sorry, I'm going to read again. Okay? Because the conspiracy of death at this moment has got a lot of us on the ropes. And the worst possible thing they can do is this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Life, joy, pleasure. You mean, but I thought life, joy, and pleasure was like a big glass of wine and a Netflix show and a nice pension. No, that's the American gospel, ladies and gentlemen. True fullness, true joy, true pleasure is found at the right hand of the living God. And the worst possible thing the world can do to you is send you there now and not make you wait anymore. Christ now uses death to deliver his people from death. Jesus died so that believers may live. The New Testament speaks of believers as sleeping. This is why they do it. Rather than dying, as Jesus did to Lazarus in John chapter 11, he said, our friend Lazarus is sleeping. And everyone's like, okay, who cares? Right? (laughs) All the disciples are like, as usual, Jesus, don't know what you're talking about, don't know why you care. He referred to his dead friend as sleeping. Paul does the same thing in in at least 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Look it up. They say they're sleeping. Why? Because we're going to eternal rest. (laughs) Because, right, they're not talking about closing your eyes and sleeping for eight hours. They're talking about the fact you close your eyes here and you wake up in eternal rest at home forever with the man who is himself rest. He said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest, which is his presence. So the, right, and when you are exhausted with life and you think, man, it, it couldn't get any worse. Oh, no, death. Now it could get worse. And you think, oh, well, all they're going to do is finally give me rest. Right? And this is why old, some old people I know who are like old, like 80 and 90, the, the way they talk about it, it's like they're planning their funeral like they're planning their birthday party. I'm like, you're not even going to be there. I know, but I want you to try to have some sense of the joy that I'm going to experience. Because they're ready for rest. They're ready to go home. The resurrection is the great triumphal event, and the whole of the New Testament note of victory originates in it. Right? Christ is the author of life, Acts 3.15. The Lord of both the dead and the living, Romans 14.9. He is the word of life, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. His victory over death is utterly complete, ladies and gentlemen. His victory is made available to you. Death's destruction is certain. The second death has no power over any believer. None. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is why people who are persecuted have joy because they understand by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The worse it gets in these last moments before I close my eye is going to just echo off the goodness that I'm going to. The worse it is here, that much better when I close my eyes here and open them there. The worse it is for the people at the end, right? It just is the opposite of what they're about to experience in a few moments. That's why I think martyrs in in the end have so much ability, the ability to to put up with so much, right? You hear about famous ones, people, they, um, they, you know, they sign these recantations these famous stories, the Scottish, they put it, then they burn them, and the first thing they do is stick their hand in the fire until their hand burns off, right? Because they, they just want God to know the hand that offended you, that wrote that recantation that I now recant of because I love you more than life itself. That's the first thing that's got to burn. How does a martyr have the ability to do that? Because he knows that hand that he's about to receive back from the Lord is going to be better than the one he lost. Now that's living. That's living. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. With the hope of the resurrection to sustain him, the apostle Paul viewed death as a defeated foe that cannot separate God's people from his love and his presence. Paul states it in both Romans and 2 Timothy. He says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The world wants to attain the glory of the freedom of the people of God. And what makes us free? 
What goes hand in hand with liberty? You have liberty here. What goes here? Life. Life is what gives you liberty. Right? Because now you're free. You're free from Satan, sin, and death. And, and now there's conspirators of death, aren't there? And what do they want to make us afraid of? Life itself. The countenance of one another. I wear this plastic shield. I cannot wait until I get through one of these sermons where I don't have to mention masks. The day will come. For the joy set for me. I wear this plastic shield now because I don't wear the thing. And it's, it's shocking what my face, like the sight of my face does to people. Now, I'm not saying because it's a pretty face. It is, but... <laughs> But just to go, right, uh, suddenly there's a beard there in Fred Meyer that everyone can see, and it's a little shocking. And I, and I just think, look, at, we're afraid of looking one another in the face. Look at what they've done to us. They've taken away our faces. And what is, right, C.S. Lewis, you want to know what this is like? It says, till we have faces. You are not a person until you have a face. And what gives you a face? What makes you a person? Jesus does. And that's what they want to take away. Right? That, right? The conspirators in the Passion Week were like, tell us where he is. Tell us where he's gathering. Bring, bring. Now what do they want? Tell us, who, tell us who's having a birthday party. Right? Tell us who's having a celebration. Where, where are they celebrating something? Tell us. Sorry. Get all worked up. The conspirators of death, their, their plan hasn't changed. Why are we falling for it? Right? What, the peddlers of death. We have government experts now that are telling us what's good for them or what's good for us. Eat these things. Drink these things. And every, right, we just go to the supermarket and we buy whatever, whatever's there, whatever's convenient, and, and nobody thinks to look at what is in it because we just trust experts. It, right? Do you know what's in the chips that you eat? You don't care. Right? You go, the experts, the FDA said it was okay, so I guess we're going to go with that. And then no wonder they're like, well, you got to wear this mask now. And we're all like, okay. Right? <laughs> Again, I'm going to say it. Those little signs in bathrooms that tell you to wash your hands. Right? We need the experts to tell us to wash our hands because we can't possibly wash our hands ourselves. And so, <laughs> this is, we're not free. We're not a free people. We're not living. They've taken, they want to take life from us. And, and they, when they, they take our life, they take our liberty. They take our liberty, they take our life. Now, the good news is, there is a day coming where everyone will know. Everyone will know that Jesus was not lying. Right? And he will bless those who want no part of him. Because one day he will call us all forth out of the tomb like Lazarus. And all those people who wanted no part of it are going to come out of the ground and be like, oh my gosh, he was right. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh no. No, that, is that, that was a trick right there. Is that what they're going to say? Oh no. No, they're going to worship him just like us. And then they'll be ushered off to fire. There, there will be a moment where every single person who ever lived will worship him at exactly the same time. Right? And, and so... This now is what? Now we all giggle inside and be like, ha, 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 I'm so glad. I'm so glad about one of them. The people that you know who are buying into the conspiracy of death on every level are going to burn. And that should give us no necessary, necessarily in our hearts, it should not give us joy. It, it should fill us, right? We need to get everybody here. We need to get, we need, right? We need to forget what people tell us uh, the conspirators, and the lies. Everything that happens to us now drives us further into Jesus, right? If you start with death is the worst thing they can do, which brings us into the presence of Jesus. Now let's work our way backward. Let's work our way backward. The more lies we hear, what does it cause us to do? Those of us who know the Lord, what does it cause us to do? It causes us to study his word more, right? Oh, the more, if we just make the lies stop, no more lies, right? Just stop telling us lies. Well, the, the more you hear lies, the more you ought to be pursuing the truth. The more you ought to, right, you pursue the truth to know the difference between the truth and a lie. So, no, enemy, keep on lying, right? Keep on lying, because the more you lie, the more I'm going to have to search the scriptures and find out if it's true or not. Oh, well, now, you know, they're coming at us left and right. Is it? Don't worship. Don't gather. Don't sing. Do this. Do that. 
And, and some of the people of God are gathering into tighter and tighter and tighter communities. So the more they try to take from us, the more it gives us what? The body of Jesus. Right? This is what I'm talking about. Nothing they can do. They're completely disarmed. All they can do is give us more and more and more and more Jesus. At every turn. They pull out a big gun of death and they point it at us and they pull the trigger and what pops out like a bunch of clowns is a bouquet of flowers. You're like, oh, thank you. I'll go put these on the empty tomb. Right? When you understand what's going on, you see that all the weapons of the enemy say Acme on the side. And all they ought to hear from us is a cheerful beep, beep, as we are running after Jesus. Right? That is the kind of people we ought to be. Oh, death, that's what you got, right? You're going to scare me with that? You're going to scare, right? You're going to tell me not to worship? What are you going to do, put me in jail? Well, I can worship there too. Now, everything the enemy can do gives us more Jesus, everything. Now, the last part of this here is understanding, right? Death now is a great blessing. There's nothing to fear about it. And this is what we're proclaiming to the world. Now, there's elements of the service that, that we do, and we think that's the point. Okay, the preaching, that must, that's the point, right? That's the thing we're doing that God told us to do? Well, it is. It's true. What about the, the singing, the confessing? Now, we do all of those things because God tells us. But when we come here, what is it that we're really doing? What's the central thing? Oh, there's a giant table right there. Oh, what's on it? This is the central thing. This is the point. Because what we're doing is we're accepting that the enemy is completely disarmed and week after week after week we show the world it is in fact disarmed. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you understand what his death is, his death is the death of death. So we, right, the whole world is like, you will fear us because of death. And all of us are gathering the conspirators of life and saying, no, he di- Jesus died, everyone. He died, which means death died, which means there's no longer, right, the enemy is completely disarmed now. We, we proclaim it week in and week out. In the breaking of bread, we have a visible representation of the breaking of our Savior's body by the nails that pierced his hands and the feet that um, speared his side. The wine poured into the cup depicts the blood that poured from his wounds as he died on the cross. Right? And, and there's one last thing that we're going we're gonna to change our liturgy about it a little bit for this reason. For now on at the end, we're going to leave those little bowls with the lids off. Because what I want you to see at the end of the service is that the bowls are empty, like the tomb is empty. The Lord has come and he's given us a representation of his death that feeds us, the people of God, that we are proclaiming to the world. He died, and therefore death is dead. And now look, the tomb is as empty as the bowls. He provided for his people life, abundant life, eternal life. He disarmed every one of our enemies. All there is now is joy and more of him in every aspect of life. Now what, is, uh, now, what does this look like? What does it actually look like? Because this is inspiring, right? This is an inspiring message. And, and, <laughs> and I, and I want to just say, that there, there's a historical thing. Like all of 2020, there's this mantra that I had to, for myself. I said mantra. I don't really believe in all that. But you don't understand what a mantra is. And this is it. Nelson came out. Every, right? we got both about to have this intense elders meeting about whether we meet in the parking lot or not. And the thing I just kept telling myself is Nelson came out. Nelson came out. Nelson came out. And finally my son was like, what are you talking about? Why do you keep saying that to yourself? Now, what I need are pictures. I need a picture that, that, that gives me something to, to really understand imaginatively what we're talking about. And here's the history lesson. There's a little battle called the Battle of Trafalgar in which the Franco-Spanish fleet was aligned in, a, in very large battleships. Right? And this is, what, this is why a battleship is called a battleship. It's called a line of battleship. And we just cut off the line of because after the, what I'm about to tell you, nobody lined up anymore. <laughs> the ships just go here, there, and everywhere. 
But there you have this impenetrable wall, this massive wall of guns, Spanish and, Fr and French guns. And they're all anchored there. And there's nothing but shallows on either end. And there's no way. And the best hope you have are British, the British tiny ships doing what they always do and pull up in a giant line and everybody starts shooting at one another until there's only one group of boats left. And so they, they what are we going to do? Their fleet is bigger. Their fleet is, is firmly established. We can't, they have more guns. They have bigger guns. And, and they spent days figuring out what they were going to do. And on the day of battle, they had a plan. But then there was another plan. There was another plan most people didn't know about. And as they stood there, they all looked up, and there was Nelson's ship with every stitch of sail on it. And they said, Nelson's coming out. And they had no idea what he was doing. And what he did was he went right at the center of the enemy's line, right at it, guns blazing on both sides. And all of the ships opened up fire on him. He ended up dying, but, and that also is part of the story, right? He came out, and he had one message on top of his ship, and this was it. England expects every man to do his duty. And his duty as a leader was to what? To snap the enemy's back. And he came down, right, with all the wind behind him, not slowing down at all, blasting away. And what nobody noticed was this other little line of ships, because Nelson had better maps than everyone else. He had a better plan. And it turns out the shallows on the south end weren't actually as shallow as everyone thought. And all the English ships that nobody was paying attention to slipped in behind and sunk, burned, and took a prize every single one of the enemy ships. They smashed Nelson's ship. It sunk. There's a replica of it because it was literally so destroyed that they could not use it anymore. And this is what I think of. This is what Jesus did. Right? There, if the, if the disciples had remained, <laughs> they would have been like, there goes Jesus. Jesus is coming out. He's coming out. He is not afraid of the enemy. He's taking it head on. And through death, he doesn't just secure his life, but he secures the life of all of his people forever. Now, what would have happened if all the British soldiers saw him going out, right? We're back to Nelson, not Jesus. They said, wow, man, that's not going to work out. That's bold. That's a terrible plan. And what would, what would have happened if they would have held back? Now, you serve a God who did not stay in heaven. He did not stay in the tomb. He comes out. And so why are we listening to the conspirators of death? Now, I'm not saying we revile and hate them. Why are we giving them any reasonable, right? Oh, oh, that's logical. Oh, yeah, let's, let's have a dialogue. Let's, we can't possibly imagine what your motivation is, Jay Inslee, but we're going to just go along with all, right? Like I said, we are antithetical to Paul's version of Christianity. Now we're like, oh, you know, you want us to dance? Play us a tune. Right? We're slaves. We're your servants. You want us to dance? We'll play, just play us a tune and we'll dance. Why are we still giving them any sort of credibility of any kind? Now, what does it look like for you to come out? Right? There's the, ladies, there's the stacks and stacks of dishes. There's the kid who's learning their phonics. And you're thinking, this is like an impenetrable wall. This is like the Franco-Russian line of battleships. I can't possibly get through this. Men, right? You see, you see, you see the mortgage. You see the price of school. You're trying to buy groceries. You see gas is going up, and you think this is an impenetrable wall. I can't get through this, right? When are the mandates going to end? The mandates seem like an impenetrable wall. What are we in phase three of? We don't know what. Seventy phases probably. Yeah, phase three. And it seems like an impenetrable wall. So what does it look like for us to not hold back but to come out? Right? Come out in faith. Come out and raise the flag and say, we expect us all to do our duty. What does it look like in your life? Children, right? What does it look like to obey your parents in all things? What does it look like to, love, right, to obey them? And, and you're sitting there and there's the stack of school books and you're thinking this is an impenetrable wall. And this is the answer. The next thing, the next step, what does obedience look like now? Jesus heard that his friend was sick, and he said, you know, yeah, this is going to bring God's glory. And he went and did the next thing. And, he, and what, what happened then? Well, then there's a bigger conspiracy against him. And he said, okay, well, what do we do now? Okay, well, now we're going to go to the city. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Okay, now we're going to go to the temple. And, and his whole plan was as simple as doing the next obedient thing. 
And that's, that's what Nelson meant by every, we, we expect every man to do his duty. Right? Fathers, husbands, wives, mothers, grandparents, children. What is the next obedient thing that God has called you to do? And while you're doing that, that, you have to understand what you're participating in. And it's a conspiracy of life. Teaching your kid how to read is a conspiracy of life. <laughs> Loving your wife, coming home every day and treating her well and providing for her and taking care of her, right? And, and, and giving her everything that she needs, all the love and care and, and protection that she needs. That's a conspiracy of life. And, and you are capable of doing it because all of the enemy, all of them are disarmed. All that remains now is for you to die to yourself. And ladies and gentlemen, we want to make it about all the things that Jesus already conquered. Well, what about, well, what about, well, what about he did away with all of those? The last thing is, are you going to die to yourself or not? That's it. And that looks like an impenetrable wall, doesn't it? And the only thing for it is to come out and take it head on. And then what kind of husband would you be? What kind of mother would you be? What kind of child would you be? What kind of master would you be? The Lord has defeated the enemy. We have got to stop blaming them for our disobedience. Stop looking to them as an excuse for a scapegoat. Right? We want to all join into this conspiracy of death. And Christ has freed us from all of that to give us true liberty to love our wives and children and husbands and neighbors and one another fully, full of life. This is what the Lord has given us. This is, he came out. Now let's follow him, right? Let's go beep, beep, and follow him like the runner. Because the enemy has no weapons. It says acme on all of them. It's over with. Die to yourselves and come. Join the conspiracy of life. Not just on Easter Sunday when we all look extra nice and there's beautiful flowers down here. This is a conspiracy of life that requires your whole life. Come and join us. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the word of life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you, Lord, that he did not remain in heaven but came out. We thank you, Lord, that he did not remain in the tomb but came out. We pray, Lord God, that we would, with our whole hearts, with our, with our entire mind, with all of our strength and all of our emotions, Lord, accept this salvation and not look to excuse our disobedience because of the conspiracy of death. Let us rise up in, in faith and obey the Lord Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we go from here, Lord, and live an abundant life in the presence of Jesus. When, when people hear us, may they hear him. When they see us, may they see him. When they hear us singing, may they hear his praises. Lord God, we pray now that you would give us a deep and abiding understanding of what it means, Lord, that, that you have disarmed the enemies of God that you've disarmed the conspirators. We pray that you would bless us and protect us as we go from here. We thank you for this glorious day, and amen.